0: But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphant procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God through those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Shall we pray? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we make much of who you are and what you have done. Father, we know that you are a sovereign God because your scripture tells us time and time again of your control, of your moving, and of your working. The psalm tells us our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. And Father, we realize and we trust you. Not only are you a God who can do whatever you want, but you're a God who is good. And you have promised that you are working and moving even from things that we perceive as evil, you are using for good. Even though the nations rage, you laugh. For there is no power in heaven, above us, on earth, or under the earth that can thwart your sovereignty or match your wisdom and your power. But Father, we confess so often in times like this, we grow weary. We grow fearful. Our heart is overwhelmed with anxiety about the what-ifs. We grumble and we complain. We taste the sweetness of the manna, and then we grow tired of your faithful provision each day. Father, we confess as a nation we are bitterly torn. Not between right and wrong and good and evil, but between pride on one side and pride on the other. We dehumanize. We devalue. We reject our neighbor because they don't look like us. They don't think like us. They don't vote like us. And Father, we repent as individuals, as a church, as a nation, for your judgment is upon us as we look at our TV screens and our social media. For we are a prideful people. Humble us that we may turn away from our government, from our own abilities, our own um, trust, and look up to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who did not consider the right and the honors as the Ancient of Days, But he laid himself, he humbled himself because of his love to save us, even to the point of death on the cross, to save his people. And I pray that we would be a people that would deny ourselves and die to self, to follow our humble Jesus. Father, we thank you that though we struggle with pride and self-sufficiency and self-love, though we turn to politicians and governments and education and portfolios, you are gracious and compassionate. Father, I pray right now for the Key family as they grieve the loss of Bill, a husband, a father, a great grandfather, a member of the Postal Service, A deacon here at church a church member faithful for many years decades because of the value of christ i pray that their family would be comforted as they grieve not with the grieve as those with hope there will be a day when bill will arise no longer confined to a wheelchair but his body will be strong and true and his mind will be clear and free from sin because he will be like Jesus. When Christ comes and returns to bring his kingdom on earth, it is his new heaven and new heavens and new earth, Bill will rise, not because of his goodness, not because of his righteousness, but because he trusted in the goodness and the righteousness of Christ alone for who Christ is and what he has done. Father, we praise and we thank you for your provision. Pray for Jenny as she grieves her husband. Father, teach us to trust you. Father, give us wisdom, give us compassion, give us humility. In a world where compassion, humility, and wisdom are few, may we look to Christ, our only hope in life and death, that we may find shelter in the midst of the storm. In his precious and holy name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. If you're not already there, turn to 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 17. On March 27th, in 2015, Robert Koneman, my pastoral mentor, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. It was a malignant glioblastoma tumor that immediately began to affect his speech his ability to walk, and his ability to work. He was given 18 months to live if he was lucky, and the likelihood that he would survive was slim, if any. But when Robert sat in the doctor's office that day, and he heard the results of his test, that it was a brain tumor in his head, one of his first response that day was to sing the doxology. Praise God from Whom all blessings flow." But not just his first office visit with hope and with exuberance and we're going to defeat this thing. It wasn't just his first office visit. It was every office visit. No matter if the update was good or the update was bad. If it was encouraging or discouraging, he sang, Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. And sadly, there was much more bad news than there was good. In the wake of such devastating, life altering news, Robert worshiped. How? How could he worship in the midst of life-altering, life-threatening, snatching a man at 53 years old? How could he worship? He worshiped because he trusted God. Robert, in those times, did a lot of thinking, and he meditated, and he said this, This became the battle cry, the banner, the encouragement in times of storm. Our God is not a novice. He knows what He's doing. God knows what He's doing when times are good. When our bills are paid, when our job is secure, when our, um, our children are happy, when our health is good, when the sun shines on our shoulder, when the world is all as it should be. Those are times when it's rather easy to worship. But what about the bad times? Times of disp- uh, disappointment and unmet expectations times of debilitating health and broken relationship, times of loneliness and job loss, times of worldwide pandemics that isolate us from those we love and things that we love to do. Times like this, times that we are living in, sometimes make worship much more Difficult. And in times like this, in difficulties and struggles and unmet expectations, in times of questioning, we ask the question, why? Scripture is time and time again uh, asked, why? How long, O oh Lord? Where are you, Lord? Aren't you going to do anything? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But if anybody has read through Scripture, oftentimes we realize that the answer to why often never comes. In the midst of the why, we need the how. We need the how to worship in the midst of struggling, in the midst of pain, in the midst of struggle. We need a biblical perspective by which to understand the seasons when the rain comes down and the flood comes up. We need the how, not the why. The why has never been promised to us, and quite honestly, I'm not sure we'll even know the why on the other side. We may or may not, but the how is given us today. We need the how to help us view suffering through the lens of the gospel as we grieve, as we lament, as we suffer to be able to suffer well. Let me warn you if your picture of god is not built on the god of scriptures but the god of social media the god of your own making the god of folk religion you uh, will be devastated when the experiences of life hit you like a storm on a small vessel in the midst of the sea but the promise of scripture is this That if your picture of God is built on the God of Scripture, you will be able to worship in the midst of pain and struggle and disappointment. In the midst of things that you don't understand. So this morning I I want to give you my big idea. I want you to be able to understand this, is that all who trust the Lord can worship in the midst of suffering. All who trust the Lord can worship in the midst of suffering. Why? Because God is sovereign over our suffering. Because God is sovereign over our suffering. And God is using our suffering to make himself known. God is using our suffering to make himself known. Let me repeat it because I got good feedback for repeating it again. All who trust the Lord can worship in the midst of suffering. Why? Because God is sovereign over our suffering, and he's using our suffering to make himself known. Let's begin by looking at the fact that we can worship in the midst of suffering because God is sovereign over our suffering. I want to give you a little context because we're in 2 Corinthians this morning rather than continuing in Mark. Uh, But the context of uh, of 2 Corinthians is that Paul, the apostle, is writing to a group of believers that he dearly loves. Notice uh, a, a few verses earlier from our text this morning, verse 4 of chapter 2. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I had for you. In the middle of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there was another book that has not been preserved uh, by the Holy Spirits. But it was a letter, if, if, for one and a half Corinthians if you will. It's a letter where Paul had to really almost wire brush the Corinthians. Because of a struggle that they were having, because of a sin that they were embracing, because of a lifestyle or way of thinking, whatever it may be, we don't know what it is, but we know that Paul loved them well enough to tell them what they were doing. It was not consistent with somebody who is following Christ. It was a hard conversation that he had, but it was a conversation that was done in love and humility for the purpose of not making Paul feel self-righteous and good about himself, but to restore his brothers and sisters in Christ and to bring them more in alignment with the mind of Christ that their lives may reflect who Christ is and what he has done. In 2 Corinthians, there is a growing problem in the church. A cancer, a threat of wolves that have uh, perpetuated into the church or or, uh, penetrated the church in sheep's clothing. These super apostles that were beginning to criticize Paul and that they were saying that Paul is not... Consistent with somebody that is blessed and highly favored by God. He is not somebody that's living their, his best life now. Why? I mean, look at Paul's life. He has way too much suffering. Somebody who speaks for God would never suffer like Paul would. So clearly, Paul's not doing it right. You don't need to follow him. And Paul passionately pleads to these brothers and sisters, don't be lured away by the thinking of the world, by the deceitfulness of Satan, and to be pulled away from the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings us peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul tells them in 2 Corinthians, as we'll see partially today, that suffering is an instrument of grace... It's not a punishment of a wrathful God. Paul's best life now was not avoiding uh, grace. Excuse me, was not avoiding suffering. But his best life now was embracing suffering that he may be like Jesus. Notice verse 14. Our text this morning opens up with the, the simple words, five simple words. But thanks... Be to god these are words of worship not words of bitterness not words of anger not words of angst not words of fear but they are a response but thanks be to god ocean park let me ask you this morning as we begin to consider this text in this worshiping in the midst of suffering can you say but thanks be to god when the pregnancy test is negative again when the mortgage company keeps calling, when you watch your children make foolish decisions, when the doctors say they have no answers and that you don't have much time. Can you worship in the midst of suffering and say, but thanks be to God, when the, your longing for compass, uh, companionship aches and the person in your bed is an adversary, not a friend? Worship is often the last thing we want to do when we have a broken heart and a crushed spirit. Typically, how we respond to this is we withdraw to ourself, self pity, self promotion, self isolation. Like Paul Simon, we say, I am a rock, I am an island, I touch no one, and no one touches me. We turn to functional saviors food, and sleep, and TV, and money, and work, our own wisdom. And we shake our fists at heaven and uh, utter ultimatums for our faith. If you want me to follow you, you need to do fill in the blank. Paul does none of this. In the midst of struggle, in the midst of suffering, In the midst of difficulty, Paul turns to worship. But thanks to be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphant procession and spreads uh, uh, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Brothers and sisters, we can worship in the midst of pain because God is sovereign over our sufferings. Now, to be able to understand this better, we need to understand the metaphor that Paul uses in verse 14. It's a metaphor that easily as 21st century Christians we can gloss over or we can completely miss. He's actually using um, the metaphor and the imagery of a Roman procession, a Roman victory procession that is gone to a far country to the enemies of Rome, to uprisings and rebellions, has put down these people, has conquered these people, and now he is bringing the survivors and the prisoners of war back to Rome, either to be slaves or to be sacrificed to the gods of Rome. In this triumphant procession, it's this victory parade, if you will. You can think of sports teams who go through the downtown of their city led in buses and celebration, and almost millions of people will arrive and to get a glimpse of the players and the trophy, and they make much of a big deal. It's the very same essence of what's happening when this Roman victory procession, this triumphant procession, is coming back to Rome. At the beginning of this parade, you have magistrates and the senators, followed by trumpeters, blasting uh, joyous, victorious... uh, um, Nationalistic songs, patriotic songs that not only lift up Rome but of the conquering general. You have soldiers who are walking through, waving their swords, waving the loot that they have plundered, giving praise and, and shouting to our triumphant hero. then flute players and priests and priestesses. And then uh, white oxen that are going to be sacrificed at the altar of the gods when they arrive in the heart of the city. And then find, then the great reason that they're here. The man of triumph. What uh, the Romans would call the triumphator. People would exalt and honor and acclaim him almost like a god. This victory, this peace, this rebellion was put down because the great and mighty Triumphator has conquered. And the women would praise him, and the men would revere him, and all made much of the Triumphator entering his city. But the Triumphator was not last there was one more group of people. They were the prisoners of war. They were the captives. These were the people that were defeated, disgraced, and they were shamed. As they were driven in chains into the heart of the city where they would either be sold into slavery or they'd be sacrificed to the gods. If you go and ancient history, you can go into Rome and you can see the Arch of Titus. And it's a magnificent edifice. And if you draw closer, you can see in the inside of the arch the great depictions of the triumphant processions. This is the mighty triumphant tour, the conquering general who has brought his people. And you can see even in this weather-damaged Two-millennial old depiction of the mighty power of Rome and the army and the triumphator. You can see on the other side of the arch the soldiers as they return. And specifically about this, this was a triumph of the, of the war with the Jews. You can see the menorah and the objects of the temple in AD 70 that were uh, captured and looted and brought back to Rome in this triumphant procession. Paul uses this metaphor to be able to explain how a Christian is to worship in the midst of struggle, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain. And Paul identifies himself with individual in this Triumphant procession. And in our 21st century man centered thinking, when we read these texts, we often read it like the scripture is about us, our problems, our victories, and how God is going to help us. So, what do we do? We make ourselves the soldiers up front that are coming through with the loot and the power and all of those. But Paul doesn't identify himself with the soldiers. Paul is identifying himself with the captives. He's not a victorious captor, but he is one who has been defeated by the kindness of God's grace. He is not disgraced at following his triumphant tour, but he is following his gracious conqueror. Paul was a trophy of the grace of God. Paul's story, if you know anything about it, is in, uh, recorded in the book of Acts, that he was a highly educated Jewish Pharisee that persecuted any followers of the way in his zeal in his, uh, to be able to worship God. Until on the road to Damascus, he met his triumphant tour, Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.12 says this, Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul's life was no longer his own. It belonged to Jesus Christ who had conquered him and Paul who had willingly followed Jesus. He followed Jesus all through the known empire, through three missionary journeys. He performed incredible miracles in the name of Jesus. He wrote much of the New Testament, and he was beaten, and he was bruised, and he was persecuted for the sake of Jesus, who he willingly followed, who had had captured him by his grace. Turn in... 2 Corinthians keep your finger here in chapter 2 but turn to chapter 11. If you have a Pew Bible at home it's chapter 97 or page 970. Chapter 11 verses 23 through 28. Are they these super apostles that were questioning who he was that he was not suffering? They was suffering too much, he, too much. He couldn't possibly be of God. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one, I'm talking like a madman, for with far greater labors, for, my, for my, far greater more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I spent adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship on many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from these things, this physical suffering, there is the daily pressure of On me and of my anxiety for all the churches. Many of you watching have suffered in your life, suffered because we live in a fallen world, and suffered because you're following Jesus. But I don't know if anybody suffered to the extent of what Paul in his life and ministry has suffered. But he endured joyfully. He followed his uh, triumphant tour, Jesus Christ, who had conquered him by his grace, and he willingly followed him, knowing this, that following Jesus never, Jesus never promised us a life free of suffering. In fact, it was actually the opposite. Take up your cross and follow me. The world hated me. It will hate you. Why do we think that we can be healthy, wealthy, and wise in this world and, and glide through with no problems? And when we come on often self-inflicted wounds, we shake our fists at heaven and said, I would never follow you. God never promises of life that is free from suffering and pain and anxiety. But God promises us that he is in control of everything mm. That we face. Suffering is directed by the hand of God. Notice what Paul says back in chapter 2 verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us. Paul was suffering not because of low self-esteem or because of a bad business model or a bad ministry model. He wasn't doing it right. It wasn't because he lacked education or lacked cutting-edge technology. It's not because Paul had too little faith or that he had a shallow knowledge of God or an insufficient understanding of the doctrines of God. It wasn't because Paul was being punished for his sin or because God was cold and cavalier towards people, un- uh, Uncaring about what his people were suffering, Paul was suffering because Christ's suffering at the cross were being reproduced in the lives of his people. Second Corinthians or before the chapter before says it this way. Paul says, for, we, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in in comfort, too. Later on, it's a little wonky there. Anna, go ahead and blank that out. Later on, it says in Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness. I am content with weakness. Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God uses suffering. He uses suffering to empty us of ourselves and our self-pride and our our self-will and our self-determination and fills us with Christ. We teach our children, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak. But we take pride in what we've done. I built that, I did that. I don't need anybody, I don't need anybody's charity, I don't need help. But scripture tells us we do, we desperately do. We are weak. And often in times like this, in suffering that shows, it reveals to us, it breaks out the um, <clears throat> delusion of grandeur that we have. And it reveals to us how much we need Jesus when everything around us is like sinking sand. But let me say this. Let me give you this dic- disclaimer. Because God is sovereign in our suffering, that doesn't make suffering any less bitter or any less difficult. The cry, the tears that we cry and the emotions that well up inside us are still as real. And the hurt is still very deep. But even when those things overwhelm us and we don't believe we can go on we can worship in the midst of pain, knowing God is sovereign over our suffering. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphant procession. Not only is God sovereign in directing the hand of our suffering, but also God is suffering is always under God's control. It's not in God's control most of the time, or a majority of the time, he's always leading us and guiding us. Paul was led all throughout the Roman Empire. We are led all throughout our life. Life as a conquered soldier of grace, former enemies, I once was lost in darkness night, yet thought I knew the way. We just sang that. Life as a conquered soldier is not an easy life. Where suffering uh, elicits feelings of despair and fear and dread. We must die to self and deny ourselves to follow our triumphant ear. The fear of the unknown and the loss of control over our life can ha- ha- cause our heart to crumble and shakes our faith. Like our call to worship today though the mountains be slid into the heart of the fear of the of the sea god is our refuge and strength can you identify with that do you know that but the promise when you watch the mountains of your life slide into the sea and you feel the foundation shake the promise is that Christ is always leading us. Nothing has overcome our triumphant tear, for he has foreseen and foreknown and foreordained all that is a, a, we experience in our life. That is humbling, and that is encouraging, and it is comforting in the midst of difficulty. John Bunyan, who we, uh, in our children's story on Wednesday night, we looked at, wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. And there's a a very well-known scene, a pilgrim walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It says it here. We have seen the valley itself, Bunyan writes, which is is dark as pitch. We've also seen the hobgoblins the satires and the dragons of the pit. We heard also in the valley a continually howling and yelling as of people under unutterable misery who there sat bound in affliction and irons, and over that valley hangs the discouraging clouds of confusion. Death also doth always spread his wings over it. In a word, it is every whit Dreadful, being utterly without order. Does this ever describe how you feel when you're going through life? Your physical, your emotional, your financial, and your spiritual sufferings can be a heavy load to bear. There's discouragement, there's anxiety, there's spiritual oppression, and there's confusion. What is going on? Where are you, God? Why is this happening to me? The valley of suffering and the valley of the shadow of death is dark and a desolate place for a weary pilgrim as they journey to the celestial city following Christ. But Bunyan wrote that Christian, the main character of the story, found encouragement. Christian perceived God was with them in that dark and dismal state. Though by reason of the impediment that attends this place, he could not perceive it. We have the comfort of Psalm 23, verse 4, that Andrew read for us this morning, that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because our good shepherd, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphant procession. Our triumphator has never left us on his own. He has never forgotten us. He has never lost control, though we think he has. He guides us through seasons of joy and seasons of sorrow, through seasons of laughter and through seasons of tears, through seasons of plenty and seasons of little for the moment from the moment that Christ has made you his own and you have put willingly put your faith in him he has been leading you according to his will and he is bringing you to your final destination the great celestial city the place where god dwells with his people heaven where god is always therefore In the midst of struggle, in the midst of pain, all who trust the Lord can worship in the midst of suffering, knowing that God is sovereign over our suffering, and God is using our suffering to make Himself known. Notice verse 15, it says, uh, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one a fragrance from death to death, and to the other a fragrance from life to life. The sense of smell is the most powerful sense tied to your memory. It can unlock memories hidden from years, decades, and throughout your lifetime. I know in my life, many of the good memories that I have as a child are my mother's pasta sauce on a Saturday morning. I would wake up and I would smell the garlic and the onions and the, and the sauce cooking in the kitchen. I remember as a little boy, my father would take me on his uh, jobs. My father did home improvement, he often laid carpet, and on Saturday mornings, he would bring me along, and I would work and get in his way, and he would shoo me off, but he would lay out those big rolls of brand new carpet, and the overwhelming smell of new carpet reminds me still to this day of working and being with my dad. I remember when I was a little boy in 1986, I would go to Westtown Pharmacy or I would get on my bicycle and I would buy a pack of Topps baseball cards with a stick of gum inside. And I would open that, that, that uh, card, those packs of cards, and it would bring back my childhood memories. Still, the smell of baseball cards brings me back. I remember my wife's perfume on our honeymoon, May bouquet, 21 years ago this Friday. I remember Anna's bedtime bath when she was little, the smells that bring back those memories, the smells of my boys playing outside, and they would come in dirty after a long, good day of play. But bad smells also bring bad memories. I still remember the smell of the nursing home where my grandfather died. Fragrance has a powerful impact, and it's the metaphor that Paul uses to be able to explain how God is uh, bringing the fragrance of the aroma of the knowledge of God and dispensing it all all the world. In this triumphant procession in the Roman Empire, the priests were there. And throughout that, they would be burning incense, which they would bring into the heart of the city at the temple of the, of the gods. And everywhere they go, that incense to the, those that were on the side of Rome, there would be smells of victory and glory and, and joy. But for those that were in the back, it was the smell of defeat and shame. Brothers and sisters, there is a promise in our suffering. Despite how we feel, God is using us and leading us throughout all of our life to diffuse the aroma of the knowledge of God, to make the gospel known. Suffering is not random and arbitrary, but it is directed and guided by God, it has purpose. In good times and in bad times, God is spreading the aroma of the gospel. Besides still waters and through dark valleys, God is spreading the gospel. In times of plenty and in times of lack, God is spreading the aroma of the gospel. This week, I was texting a member of our congregation who is often struggles with the difficulties of her childhood. She couldn't understand why God didn't give her the love and stability that some of her friends had. And now, after many years, she has finally begun to realize that God was using those sufferings to forge in her an incredible compassion for the vulnerable that would give her a heart and a steadfastness to help those in need. She began to realize that even when we suffer, we have a good and loving Father who uses our brokenness and leads us through our brokenness to make Himself known. Brothers and sisters, faithful suffering is a means of spreading the Gospel to others. Verse 15, we are the aroma. We are the aroma of the knowledge of Christ, of God, among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Our lives are living sacrifices, Paul says in Romans, living sacrifices that are given and offered to God to honor and glorify and magnify his goodness, his mercy, and his greatness. Everything we do is an act of worship to our God, in times of blessing and in times of suffering. We are demonstrating the value of the gospel, the worth of Christ, when we suffer and in the way we suffer. Some will watch and take offense at such a notion. They'll not understand, they'll be angry, they'll laugh at you, you're a fool. God is supposed to bless you, God is supposed to be good. That's the God of our making. It's the God of Facebook. God of the, uh, our own uh, imaginations. It's not the God of Scripture. But we're called in the midst of difficulty to demonstrate who Christ is, to let the world know, because in the midst of difficult, we keep praising, we pre- keep proclaiming, we keep praying, we keep making much of Christ because he is valuable. And when we act the way the world does not expect, we demonstrate to the world that Jesus is more valuable than my possessions, than my blessings, than my comforts. Not only is God using himself to make us known to the world, but God is using himself in suffering as a means to teach the gospel to ourselves. It's easy to see other people's need for the gospel. That guy and that gal and all of those people, they need Jesus. But often we fail to recognize the sinner in the mirror. Who desperately needs Jesus? Second Corinthians chapter one verse nine. It says, "Indeed, we have received the sentence of death, but that we but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead." See, we learn our greatest we, uh, uh, needs at our weakest points. Suffering reveals our inability and Christ's ability. It reminds us of our weaknesses and it reminds us of Christ's strength. It turns our eyes away from the fleeting pleasures of this world to the eternal joy that's found in Christ. Brothers and sisters, if God is leading you in Christ, He will sustain you and you can trust Him. And then he asks the question, but who is sufficient for this? Who is called to such a task? The answer is no one. There were hucksters, and there are hucksters today who are peddling the word of God for profit. They're saying, name it and claim it and sow your seed and, and prayers, uh, pray God, uh, prayers that God wants to hear. They're peddling the word of God for profit. They're not preaching the gospel of Jesus. Don't listen to them. They will lead you away from your only hope in life and death. But there's those that are sincere, like the apostles, Paul and sincere uh, brothers and sisters and men and women throughout the history of the church who have trusted Christ and followed Christ because Jesus has overcome a world that is filled with sin and disappointment and pain. He has conquered sin and he will return with power to reign. He will wipe away every tear. He will eradicate every sickness and he will make every injustice right the hope of the gospel is this, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. I can follow Jesus and trust Jesus. Even in the midst of suffering, I can worship. Why? Because all who trust in the Lord can worship in the midst of suffering. Because God is sovereign over our suffering, and God is using our suffering to make himself known. In the last few minutes here at Ocean Park, I want to ask you three questions. The first question is this. Who is sovereign over your life? Have you surrendered to Jesus Christ as your triumphant tour, Or are you still fighting against him? Jesus tells us. No, go back, Anna. Go clear that out. Go back to a blank screen. Scripture tells us that you either a joyful captor of Jesus Christ, or you're His enemy. There is no middle ground. You cannot. Uh, whoever is with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Stop trying to work things out yourself, and stop trying to fix everything, and follow Jesus. You can't do it. Sin has ruined this world, our nation, and ourselves. But Jesus promises this, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Surrender yourself today to the conquering grace and unfailing love of Jesus Christ. The second question I ask is this, what is preventing me from praising God? Is it because you're selfish? You want what you want, you don't want to suffer. Is it because your God is too small, you don't have a place for suffering in your theology? All you want out of Jesus is a get-out-of-jail-free card. Johnny Erickson taught the paraplegic who has now been paralyzed for 50-plus years, She had a diving accident in 1967, and before that, she was satisfied to wallow in the shallow end of understanding God until my neck was cracked. We need to understand Scripture better. The role of suffering in forming us and molding us in the image of Jesus and trusting Jesus as He leads us all the way. We need to read books. Stop filling your mind with the nonsense and silliness of this world on your phone, on your tablet, on Kindle, on whatever it may be. And read books that are going to bring you closer to understanding God. Books like Carson's How Long, O oh Lord, Nancy Guthrie's book, Be Still My Soul, which is in our library. Talk with someone who has suffered a similar problem. We have many people in our lives, in our church, who have gone through difficulties, and they're farther down the road. Ask them, What did Jesus teach you? What did you do that sustained you in the midst of the tears and this path that Jesus is leading you? Be in community, don't waste your suffering but use your suffering to make much of who Christ is. Third question is this. How can I share the gospel in the midst of suffering? The world is watching you. The world is watching your reactions. How you respond will show the worthy of Christ. The promise is this. When we suffer, we will be blessed. Most of you will never preach any sermons, We'll never write any books. We'll never give any lectures about suffering. But how you respond to suffering will be your greatest sermon. And your audience won't be a congregation or a bunch of empty pews. Your audience will be your family, your friends, your co-workers, your enemies. Your pulpit will be in the oncologist's office at the graveside of your loved one, in prison, in a hostile work environment. It'll be at Wolfson's Children's Hospital. It'll be unemployment office, in ICU with COVID-19. Are you preaching the gospel or are you preaching heresy? Are you blessing God or cursing Him? Are you making much of Christ or are you dishonoring Him? Ocean Park, who is sovereign over your life? What is preventing you from praising God in the midst of trouble? Where can uh, you share the gospel in the midst of suffering? Robert Kahneman suffered well, and he died well. With every doctor visits, the news grew worse and worse and more grave, yet Robert continued to praise God from whom all blessings flow. Though the tears of disappointment he repeated with conviction and confidence, "Our God is not a novice; He knows what He's doing." Robert died April first, two thousand fifteen. He breathed his final breath in a room of those with in a room with those he loved the most, and he sang the doc, who sang the doxology as Robert took his final breath. Praise God for whom all blessings flow. Robert taught many people of the value and the glory of Christ in his life, in his ministry for nearly 40 years. But he taught people more about Jesus in the 18 months that he suffered and that he died. He lived for the glory of Christ, and he died for the glory of Christ, proclaiming that God is not A novice. He knows what he's doing. We may be able to say such words. May we be able to say such words that the world may know Christ, that we may trust the Lord and worship in the midst of suffering, knowing that God is sovereign over our suffering and God is using our suffering to make himself known. Shall we pray? Father, we trust you, we love you, and we need you. That we may be satisfied in you and that you may be glorified in us. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.